afternoon is based on God's Word, and I have it summarized for your purposes in the Bible catechism, sections 9 to 50, 51 to 56, fun fact number 65 to ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of the church to whom the Father has united himself. How does the glory of Christ, our head, benefit us? First, by his Holy Spirit, who pours out heavenly gifts upon us in his name. Second, by his power he descends into the will of God, our Father. What comfort is it to me that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await our Redeemer from heaven, the very same person who before has committed himself to the judgment of God for my sake, and has removed all the curse, and who will cast all his and my anger into everlasting condemnation when he will place me and all his chosen ones with himself proclamation of God's word, let us respond in the number 44 and 145. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we are coming to the end of a section of the catechism about God the Son, our Lord. If we look behind us at what we have covered in the section thus far, we will recall some themes that are quite familiar. We can think of our Savior in his sufferings, humiliated with a crown of thorns, hanging on a cross, and murdered in the grave. To be sure, however, this was followed by some beautiful scenes, as we saw an empty tomb, and we were shown our Lord in heaven, functioning as our great mediator. As beautiful and comforting as those arrangements were, this was not the end of the matter. If anything, in this section, the final scene of our Lord Jesus is nothing short of dazzling. It is dazzling because we are presented with the vision of our Lord in his glory and majesty. We are shown our Lord as king and judge. This vision, however, is not meant to intimidate us or to comfort us. Therefore, I proclaim to you this afternoon the dazzling final arrangement showing us our Lord Jesus as King and Judge, fills those who love him with comfort. We will see this bit as we consider our Lord as King in the first place, in the second place, and as Judge in the third. As we turn to our first point, it is true, of course, that we don't find our Lord referred to as King from these words in our Lord's Day. Yet this is the meaning of the phrase, sits at God's right hand. We can see this in a passage like Psalm 110. There David used those words, followed by talk of rulers having a scepter, who 
you're speaking about this time and this day. Our Lord Jesus himself indicated that he was king when just before his ascension, he said that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. We read it also in 1 Corinthians 15, the chapter dealing with the subject of the resurrection, when Paul wrote that Christ reigns at God's vivid picture of our Lord being crowned as king is found in Revelation chapter 5. We have a vision of the one sitting on the throne in heaven, given the scroll of the Lamb, who then takes up and rules the world. Make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus Christ is king of all creation. To be sure, as our catechism reminds us, we can speak of Christ being in heaven as head of the church. But our Lord's rule is not only complete in heaven. By his victory on the cross, our Lord has taken up and reigns on this earth. This does not mean that everyone bows before him. In fact, the old dictator whom he has dethroned and taken to his fortresses are still busy looking to rule. Our Lord Jesus Christ has set out to assert his authority on all the earth. He did that by sending out his apostles as worthwhile to point out how in Matthew 28, his command to go and make disciples of the nations comes within the framework of him telling his disciples that he has received all authority. When you see this connection, then you can see that the heart of that responsive preaching is the announcement that Jesus Christ is king, and all should believe in him now and forever. At the same time, while our Lord is king of the universe, we should keep in mind that his kingship is really 100% towards the earth. We learn from the scripture of some particular things he has done and in his supersessive triumph. First of all, as king, he has given gifts to his church. The first of them is the Holy Spirit. Peter said this on the day of Pentecost, after the Spirit appeared in dramatic form upon the believers gathered in Jerusalem. Peter explains it towards the end of his sermon and said, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out from heaven's mouth. gift of the Holy Spirit is proof of Christ's kingship, that he has received all authority from the Father and given authority to kings of the earth. In connection with this, we should realize that the gift of the Spirit is not the end of the matter. Rather, the gift of the Spirit is the means to the goal. He is necessary for the distribution of all sorts of other gifts. They are called spiritual gifts because they are communicated when it comes to these gifts, we learn from a passage in 1 Peter 6 at 1 Corinthians 12 that these gifts of the Spirit make it possible for a church to function as a church. They make the church function as a body. From Ephesians 4, we learn that at the top of this table of gifts is a special office. 
That passage has been spelled out that the ascended Christ will be given as a people to his people in order to build up his people. In short, Christ the King, through his spirit, enables the church to function in the community of faith. This includes both being able to live as congregations, as well as the ability and boldness to proclaim the gospel At the same time, as our Lord shows himself to be a generous king, he is also a warrior. Note that well, Jesus is a warrior. One wonders if we are sufficiently aware of this, even though we confess each week that our Lord sits at God's right hand. This aspect of being a warrior seems obvious enough when it comes to God and his dealings with us in the Old Testament. God's treatment of his enemies was swift and think of the conquest of the promised land, God made it clear there is no prisoner there to destroy the inhabitants of the land. Our Lord Jesus also seems to be such a stark contrast that the man of compassion and healing is given to the man of love. We need to remind ourselves, however, that the Bible does not stop with the gospel. God's revelation continues from the gospel through the rest of the New Testament. Already during his ministry, the Lord Jesus showed lasting rebuke and more restraint. He had no hesitation to take on the sins of his people. He spoke sharp sharp words to the Pharisees. He turned over the tables of the money changers and lepers. More significantly, we need to see how his suffering was the very same. When we think of Jesus today, we should not simply think of the suffering servant of the gospel but we should also think of the mighty king of the book of Acts who could open prison doors and strike down Herod's guards. Further, we have to think of the Jesus who came to us in the book of Revelation. When we think through that book, does it not reveal to us our Lord as he is? Think of the image in Revelation 19 of him wearing a robe dipped in blood and a mighty sword in his side. The image from Revelation 19 is something we still dread and fear. It impresses upon us that the Jesus we serve is not someone who is afraid of playing Santa Claus, who says idle tut-tut to those who oppose him and threaten the church. No, he takes them on and deals with them. If we think of Jesus as simply the soft, kind, compassionate Jesus we have not included the revelation about our Lord found in the book of Acts, Revelation. We will also continue to be embarrassed by the Old Testament with all its inaccurate allusions and harsh references. Further, we will not feel comfortable with many of the Psalms that speak of the destruction God will bring. The truth of the matter is that all this power to fight and overcome enemies has been given by the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than be embarrassed by the fact that our Lord is a mighty king, like Israel find comfort in knowing their God is more powerful than all the gods of the world combined. The church, after all, is only a little flock of God's people, strangers in a hostile world, just like Israel was once to be. However, we may know that our Lord Jesus has all power and authority, and he will use that to bring about his purposes. He will do that virtually, 
has given us his word and spirit to offer prayers and speak the word. He also has the power to bring about deliverance and restoration. People that breathe hatred and fire against the church will suddenly lose the ability to breathe and die and walk in his spirit. We are 2,000 years after our Lord's ascension, and his church is still around our Lord is King means that we can live in His protective care. We might be small and weak, but our King is strong and powerful. We need to take liberties out of ourselves and our lives. All this indeed is a dazzling display of the beauty our Lord has now brought forth. The Father has put this world into our Lord's hands, and there is our safety. So we are comforted comfort only grows greater when we consider how our Lord also fled and returned to heaven and God. I draw your attention to the mention of comfort and dread. We can think of situations where having the face of Christ is not very comforting. Perhaps one has to appear before a judge because he had a stealing speeding ticket general, having to meet a judge is not a pleasant prospect. The situation is different, however, when someone has falsely accused you of being a Christian and you have the evidence to prove your point. Then you will look forward to the face of the judge and you can make a judgment in serious earnest. We can imagine both these situations when it comes to our Lord Jesus coming to judge the living and the dead. If one has the accused to confess suffered much because of that commitment to Jesus and looks forward to that day. It will be the day when the judge will prove you indeed to be innocent. This is, after all, how it is with the church throughout the ages. It is a community that has suffered abuse and ridicule because it neglects Christ as king. When you read the New Testament letters, you frequently come across references to the suffering endured by the believers because they this day, Christians in various parts of the world suffer persecution. We can hear of struggles by Christians in places like Sudan or other African countries and the Middle East, especially where the Muslim religion is favored by the governing authorities. Where there is such persecution, the cry goes up, how long? Yes, how long must that suffering continue? In our confessions, we can hear our forefathers They were hunted down by police, their houses confiscated, their books burned, some even tortured, and others are dying in jail. When that happens, we long for the day when the judge will come. The judge whom you know is on your side because he has made things right between you and the Father. Battle weary, we look forward to the day when the battle will be over and we will finally enter the looking forward to the coming of our Lord, as judge, we look forward to what will happen to the enemies of Christ and his church. 
is this not class to be acknowledged above our fellows? Shouldn't we desire that God would be happy with the Christian life? Any hesitation about longing wholeheartedly for the punishment of our enemies perhaps is an indication of the kind of life that we are about not to live. We really have acquired a teaching of Christ. Try, however, to picture yourself in your where you have sat in prison camps, where jailers torture you and others with obvious cruelty, making you endure incredible suffering. Will your only longing be that your torturers stop at some transient moment when you both feel tired and hungry a little? Is not the human cry the cry of suffering, the pressure to be kind to our oppressors? Don't we hear that cry even perhaps in little life? Even though people today cannot be punished for the sins of the fathers, there is the idea that at least people today should apologize for the acts done by Christian oppressors. When you think of all that has been done to the people of God over the ages, and it pains us, even though we may not have that much personal experience, is the singing of some imprecatory psalms not appropriate to the times we live in? If we can't sing those psalms, we don't have the appetite for that, then our prayer for the persecuting brothers and sisters should stop confessing that our Lord has come to judge the living and the dead. After all, implied in that confession is the call for God to bring punishment upon all those who oppose the Christian Christ's faith. It is exactly because we know that when our Lord comes, that all things will finally be set straight that believers can eagerly look forward to that we are ready now to take our leave from the section dealing with God the Son, our Redeemer. We are thus indeed left with a dazzling vision of the glory and majesty of the Lord. From what we have seen, it is a truly comforting vision to see the glory of Christ our head. To be sure, he is our loving and compassionate high priest, but he is also our mighty king. In light of God's full revelation, his omniscience in our minds as Christians should not be a Christ crowned with a crown of thorns, but with many crowns of glory. For he is King of kings and Lord of lords. We may be small and weak, but our Lord is glorious and powerful, and it takes all that power to ask him our salvation.